Welcome to the Rewind Movie Podcast. So you're saying we're here because of a map? You two kids found in a cave, is that right? No, not a map, an invitation. From whom? We call them engineers. Engineers? Do you mind um, telling us what they engineered? They engineered us. The following review will contain spoilers and may contain strong language. Okay, so uh, do you have anything to back that up? No, I, I mean, look, if you're willing to discount three centuries of Darwinism, that's... Woo! But how do you know? Hmm? I don't. But it's what I choose to believe. Today, as part of our LVRMP series, where we look at every alien and predator film, we'll be discussing Prometheus. Starring Charlize Theron. Whelan found you impressive enough to fund this mission, but I'm fairly certain your engineers are nothing but scribblings of savages living in dirty little caves. Numi Rapace. What's that for? Expedition security. My job's to make sure everybody's nice and safe. This is a scientific expedition. No weapons. All right, then. Good luck with that. Michael Fassbender. I was designed like this. Because you people are more comfortable interacting with your own kind. Logan Marshall Green. May I ask you something? How far would you go to get what you came all this way for? Your answers. What would you be willing to do? Anything and everything. And Guy Pierce. You don't know. This place isn't what we thought it was. They aren't what we thought they were. I was wrong. We were so wrong. We must leave. How can you leave without knowing what they are? Or have you lost your faith? Sure. Directed by Ridley Scott. Big things have small beginnings. Hello and welcome to the Rewind Movie Podcast. And she's got a great ass. And you got your head all the way up it. Just something from a film I like. It's Gally in Glasgow. <laughs> <laughs> uh, far and about with Stephen Stills' squeeze box. It's Devlin in London. Hey, baby. Hey. <laughs> Look at you. <laughs> Look at you, baby. It's, it's Patrick in London. Warning. You have two minutes of oxygen remaining. It's Matt in South Korea. Oh, welcome back. And welcome back, listeners. You may notice... Welcome that, back, uh, Gally. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean... Welcome uh, back, me. Remember that? Yeah, well, welcome, <laughs> well, let's welcome back, everybody, shall we? Yeah. We're, we're, in, we're fully inclusive on here. So, welcome back, and we have assembled the crew. We are doing, as part of our LVRMP series, where we look at all the aliens and all the predators in, in their respective film series, and we discuss them. Um, and we have landed... On 2012's Ridley, Sir Wrigley, as some of you may know him as. Um, <laughs> the calls come in. <laughs> the calls come in. And uh, Wrigley wants to make another alien movie. Or does he? Hmm, we'll find out. Uh, it's Prometheus, yes. One, I think when we started this series, we all probably were looking forward to having a discussion, right? Because it's an interesting one. So before we get into it, guys, I think first experiences with Prometheus, right? Oh, go on then. What, what was your, you were, you said 10 years ago, you, you watched it. Yeah, well, so uh, confession time. Um, 
watched it twice in 2012, went to the cinema, and I've not seen it since. I remember the first time I went, I was like, hmm, wasn't expecting that. Um, and then the second time I thought, well, am I dumb? Maybe this was went over my head. Um, and I watched it a second time. And I had similar feelings. I probably softened on it on the second watch, and I've not seen it since. So this rewatch this week, 10 years apart. Um, but what I must say is at the time, I got, it was a bit late for me to get into YouTube. And the, after the first watch, I did go down a rabbit hole of kind of shock jock YouTube responses to Prometheus, which was quite aggressive. And I think it's still aggressive to this day. But they were very shouty and very angry. And that did influence, that colored my thinking of Prometheus. So it was good coming back to it without that swirling around in my head. Um, what about you, Patrick? Yeah, I remember going to see it on a midnight screening in Leicester, the Freeman's Park Odeon, with a friend of the show, David Biggins, who joined us on our... Um, if only there was some video Saints footage of this. If, I, if only. But back in the... Uh, in the days that me and him used to do online YouTube reviews that Gally Maeve stumbled across. And we both came out and we used to record our like initial um, thoughts from something, which in hindsight, you know, we always ran the risk of maybe we should let something settle. But it was cool to discuss something <clears throat> immediately, which is what you do when you come out of the cinema. You go, oh, what did you think? What did you think? And I was very disappointed. And it, it, when it did settle, I remember going to see it again and there was something in the film that kept pulling just pulled me back into the film that i bought the blu-ray at the time as soon as it came out and i was really interested in revisiting it and um seeing i think you know the youtube things were interesting Gally, because at the time um i found those wayland file promotional videos like happy birthday david the um TED talk. Uh, I, eyes like the ted talk the eyes on um shore and they I, I thought they were like amazing and there was more in there um and i wanted to see what i'd missed the first time that was i don't know i, I sometimes do that with films i've discussed it recently i can't remember what midnight run the first time i watched it i enjoyed it the second time more because i i watched it properly that time i don't know and i think the, there's a preconception thing with prometheus that i'd like to discuss later that i think i suffered from 2012 that uh that, that i remember essentially because alien is as we know one of my favorite ever films i don't remember watching it for at least five or six years i don't think dev did you watch it when it came out? Mm -hmm. Yep. I would have gone to the cinema to see this one. Uh, it would have been during my Cineworld Unlimited days. So I either would have seen it in what is now the Picture House Central, but back then was the Cineworld Trocadero, which is a fucking wasteland by the time I moved back to London. It was, um, it was just full of uh, uh, counterfeit um, baseball cap stalls and places where you could get your face etched in a little fake laser etched in like a little glass thing with a light under it you have several of those now oh totally yeah yeah every part of my anatomy <laughs> um and the the Cineworld, uh, i used to go sometimes on a weekend i would go like three times just to go see stuff because i had very little 
else to do and money and 15 quid a month for Cineworld was was pretty sick so uh i remember seeing it i was very excited for it um and i was disappointed that's the the overwhelming recollection i have i remember it quite clearly the film and i just remember being kind of bummed out by it and that was when i also went uh on youtube or or youtube proffered to me the um the now infamous viral video of um uh the red letter media uh guys um picking apart uh they kind of parodied the thing that they were doing which was that nitpicking but also doing so in this kind of absurdist comedic way um but i think that that kind of locked into my head at that point then that like oh this is a film that's just riddled with problems like from start to finish and i just didn't really um didn't watch it again just never really came up uh so i was really glad to get a chance to take another crack at it to be honest because that really was it it was cinema 2012 and then nothing until this week um yeah what about you matt i saw prometheus opening night midnight screening at cineworld in middlesbrough this is the cinema devlin and i used to frequent well a handful of times gorging on ben and jerry's mixed milkshakes this time i was alone like a right sad bastard with my silly real 3d glasses propped up in front of my actual glasses squished in next to some other nerd who had nothing better to do at midnight. I think that happened because of the excellent, oh, I'm going to be sick, marketing, the viral ads, TED Talk, the David one too, Ridley returning to sci-fi and specifically the alien universe. It was a blessing and a curse, I think, because it got bums on seats. It was really packed, sold out, but expectations were through the roof. One of the things I remember the most from that evening, aside from the film itself, was going into the gents after and overhearing literally everyone, maybe five lads, although there were a few oldies in the crowd, everyone in the toilets slagged it off to high heaven. An entire bathroom of blokes going in on it. I don't even recall the specifics of their complaints. I just remember it being 100% overwhelmingly negative reviews. And being an impressionable person, it nudged me into a slightly more negative space with it critically. In spite of quite enjoying it on the night, although having some disappointments with bits and bobs, it edged me into a more negative viewpoint. The underlying issue, I think, was that they wanted another alien film and instead they got an adjoining fragment of a different trilogy that didn't link directly to the other films that they know and love. And they found this frustrating. I think I found it more interesting because I thought, what are the next two films going to be? And how will they eventually bridge the gap and get us to Alien, the genesis of it all? Thank you very much, team. Right. Just as a bit of context and some facts. I call it um, just the facts, ma'am. Just the facts. Uh, I'm just going to give you a little bit about um, Prometheus when it was released, all that kind of stuff. So, and oh, there you go. Matt just got that gig. Um, so Prometheus <laughs> was released on the 8th of June, 2012 in the US, going straight to number one up against Madagascar 3 
colon, <laughs> Europe's most wanted story time. I must say, I've not seen that. Um, and in the UK, it was Snow White and the Huntsman. Uh, other films in the cinemas at the time were The Avengers. Yes, we all remember that. So that was a big one. Men in Black 3, less so. And What to Expect When You're Expecting. So this is a, a time a, a time in place when uh, when variety was king. Um, Prometheus was produced on a reported $130 million budget. It grossed $402 million worldwide. I would suggest that's a hit, maybe. Don't know what... Um, uh, what the what the bean counters would say, and currently has a seventy three percent rating from critics and sixty eight percent rating from audiences on Rotten Tomatoes. So there you go, team. There's a little bit of context um, for for Prometheus. Now, before we get into all of our talking points, Patrick, if you wouldn't mind reminding us and the listeners of the plot to Prometheus, fire was a gift from the Titan Prometheus. A gift that he stole from the gods who were terrified of what we might do with it were it to fall into our hairy little paws. When Prometheus was caught and brought to justice for his theft, the gods, well, you might say they overreacted a little and punished Prometheus. But now in the 21st century, technology has advanced so much that mankind has the ability to create and destroy at will, which leads to an obvious conclusion. We are the gods now. At the forefront of this power is Peter Wayland, who, with unlimited ambition, would like to change the world. Dr. Elizabeth Shaw asks existential questions. What happens when we die? What are our purposes? Where we came from? Whether or not we are truly alone? In 2089... After finding an ancient star map on the Isle of Skye that matches several other historical finds, Shaw and partner Holloway believe they can answer the existential questions, following the star map as an invitation from who they suspect were our creators, the engineers. Four years later, on a now-deceased Peter Whelan-funded expedition to a distant moon, the proposal too attractive for him to ignore on his quest in life. The 17 crew awake on the Prometheus to learn of their mission and meet David, a synthetic being who has been monitoring their journey in cryostasis, playing basketball and quoting Lawrence of Arabia. With her eyes on the investment, the voyage is overseen by Vickers and captained by Yannick, who's guided them onto the surface next to some ominous artificial structures along a leading path. God does not build in straight lines. Upon exploring the structures, the crew ignore common sense and practice and are split up and blindly follow their individual goals. Biologist Milburn calls snake-like alien being Baby, who didn't like that and overpowers him. While spookiologist Firefield, who loves money and loves rocks, his helmet is breached and lands in some black goo on the floor at the foot of a monolithic statue of a human-like head amidst many ampules and subsequently turns into something alien. But David seems to have his own agenda. Experimentally date-raping Holloway with the black glue himself in the guise of his own motivations, who, despite feeling unwell, makes love to his barren partner, Shaw, who is now pregnant. As the crew fall apart and Holloway is torched, the others reveal their true motives. Shaw removes the foreign object growing inside her with a medipod, fighting for her life to get away from the trilobite amidst blood and staples, locking it into the medical room before discovering the ghost of the beast, Peter Wayland. 
He's not dead and come to literally meet his maker. He did, after all, create life himself. What answers do they truly hope to find here on LV-223? Will any of the crew survive? How does David hope to develop? There is nothing in the desert. And no man needs nothing. Oh, very good, Patrick. I mean, I, I won't lie. Initially, I thought we were actually reviewing Troy. Um, but yeah, no, good stuff. <laughs> <laughs> of course, I am. I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> Without giving any sandwiches away, but my thoughts on the the film that we get. I think we need to discuss the film in its conception, right? And also how on earth we get to this point that we get Sir Wrigley back, you know, the the father of the series. Father. <laughs> There's some gladiator vibes there on that bit, do you not think? There are. Yeah. There are. I mean, yeah, if there was a pillow, yeah, Peter would be dead. Yeah. <laughs> Watch out. <laughs> You're getting smothered, Wayland. We should mention that there's a couple of very, very insightful and useful. Some of them obviously have been spanned, so everyone's like, the script was amazing, the film was amazing, uh, you know, that classic talking head stuff. But the behind-the-scenes making of Prometheus is is really fascinating, especially, I think, the first 30, 45 minutes where the original writer, um, forgive me, is it John Spates? Spates, Spates yeah. I don't know if Ridley Scott wanted to make an alien film or if he wanted to make a film about exploration and the search for meaning and where do we come from. And Fox said... Love it, Ridley. Love it. But any chance we can <laughs> use this IP that we own and you can come back to the Alien series? Because in the making of, the jumping off point is, well, everyone, I mean, this is my bad Ridley Scott impression. Everyone just kept saying, the space jockey, what, what is it? How does it work? Is he in, does he come from Liverpool? No. He maybe, maybe. But not a question I ever asked. I think it's the, it's the two writers, isn't it? Is that not the issue? That Spates was on first and Spates was on to do an alien prequel. That's mm-hmm. why he was there. And he, he wrote very quickly. It was like 40 pages or something. And he said he blinked his eyes. Before he knew it, he was in a pitch meeting with Ridley Scott pitching an alien prequel. And then later on, he got sacked off because... Uh, he's not a tested writer. He's never had anything produced. So they bring on our friend... Um, Damon Lindelof. Lindelof, mm. yeah. The dis- the other destroyer of worlds. And he <laughs> is the one who conceived of this new trilogy. And um, it's kind of is a that where the story gets alien. a little bit lost? <laughs> oh! Yeah. Da, 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 good. What a wanker. <laughs> <laughs> Ridley's intent, I don't, I don't know. It seems to have altered during the pre-production, but mm. um, yeah, I'm not sure they would have got this green lit, um, 130 million, if it wasn't an alien film. From what I saw from the the making of, again, these things are somewhat finessed. I think the original quadrilogy or quartet making ofs were probably a little less varnished largely because the films were already at that point kind of parceled up and in the past so you had a lot of the creatives kind of coming to terms with a lot of their own problems and failures and and especially in in three as well you get to see an unmaking of essentially um so but what i got the impression of on the the making of um prometheus was that it was ridley scott had invited john spates in to work on this thing and 
that it did seem that the idea was kind of already existing because I don't I, I guess prior to watching that I'd always assumed that perhaps there was this fascinating script that already existed like whole cloth which was about you know what if we met our makers and our makers were these alien beings that that no longer wanted us or or something you know mm. and that it had been retrofitted but i i do get the impression that this was generated as a, as a, a screenplay idea and john spates was a guy who didn't he'd been on the blacklist which is obviously a very good way in america of getting noticed it was actually uh, passengers was the film that was on the blacklist that was the one that was eventually produced with uh, chris pratt and uh lawrence jennifer, Jay Jay lawrence. yeah i was gonna say jennifer tilly or jennifer coolidge but um any of the jennies yeah uh, not jenny <laughs> and when it was eventually produced it largely just made it just made people a bit angry when did the space jockey thing come in then because is it not is an alien prequel not supposed to be about xenomorphs and instead of about the the guy in the chair there's the interesting thing about ridley scott is he didn't he observe himself that he was surprised uh aliens alien 3 alien resurrection um, no one addressed didn't it explore that no one addressed mm. it he thought that was the most fascinating thing about alien and and didn't he fought tooth and nail to keep that in alien at the time yeah, because yeah. they wanted it gone from a budgetary thing he said no that's that was the one thing he think he put his foot down you know as they were flogging him to death doing multiple setups a day to keep in the schedule so if you've got this germ of this idea which is the space jockey i must say as an alien fan I was always quite content with not knowing. Um, and then we have this perfect organism and that, you know, we've mm. discussed it in many of the, many of the iterations that the more we see of the alien, the more we find out about it, the demystifying takes mm. the power away. And by the time we get alien versus predator requiem, the, the it's, it, it's dead. So Prometheus is a, is an opportunity to breathe life back into the series and, and mm -hmm. maybe put it back onto the sci-fi, hard sci-fi footing that it started in. But he's not interested, is he, in anything post-alien? He's, he's, his ego comes into it. So he's only interested in, that's why it was surprising that they had that line, we are leaving. They made it sound like aliens. And that's the only thing I could detect from any of the other films. Everything else came from alien. But there's there's the bit when they they've got got forty seconds to to evacuate and Shelley's Theron is Vickers is running through. There, there's bits. There's lots there. of echoes, but that's a direct line mm -hmm. that is okay. very specific to aliens. And anyone who's like super fan of aliens will just pick it up straight away. But it, isn't that a problem because the the fans are going to want more to do with the xenomorphs and post alien. All of that stuff has kind of done that to death, and I don't think Ridley Scott's particularly interested in in that. So he's gone to the space jockey, which is another potential blind alley. Because I thought it was an elephantine alien guy with a is it a is it a gun? Is it a is it a, a telescope? What is it? But he's actually at some point he's been made the pilot of that craft, and that wasn't necessarily in the film. Someone decided that that's what he is. And in fact, he's a humanoid underneath. So all these little decisions that they influence the engineer story. And there was a part of me rewatching it this time where I was like, this would make and feels like televisual script because there's loads of threads going on. There's loads of, um, but they're not like plot A, plot B, plot C. Mm. They're, they're prop they, you could see them as whole episodes, but in a film, we do not have enough time to explore any of it. So it feels super surface level. And then we've got this whole mystery box thing 
which this film suffers from hugely because we pose questions and this is why we kind of re- reference lost and and as i say the jj abrams kind of school of thinking which is it doesn't really matter what's in the box as long as we build a mystery around it and i think that as a premise great for a television show i'm not sure for an alien film when you when your when your premise is or the conceit is we're going to meet our makers and somehow that's going to tie in with how we develop a xenomorph that that for me was where the conflict was in watching it this time around so then the through line from that making you know meets our makers and if that is what ridley scott is interested in it still does come through with Whalen creating david and and if the engineers did create mankind but the the blade runner um relationship you know what what it is to be human and who is human and um artificial life do you think that's what scott was more interested in well Shaw never finds out does she why they wanted to take us out and i wondered if they were trying to say something nihilistic about like the idea of creation and sometimes they just created because they felt like it and then they're going to destroy us because they feel like it but one of the problems, and, and also you can relate that to David and the idea that Whalen created a, an AI robot or or whatever he is. But the the problem there for me is that Shaw's sort of hero's journey becomes about uh, finding them first of all, and then when they find, when she finds them, they ha- she has to find out why they want to to kill us, and she doesn't find out. We don't find out as an audience. The other issue with that is we start falling into a slightly souped-up version of Independence Day, really. It tends to go one of two ways, even the more ethereal stuff. It's either they're here to teach us something about us, about the human condition, that we can take away. I'm thinking like The Abyss um, mm. or Close close Encounters, or it's they're here to destroy us, and it's a battle. I suppose we don't find out why in those disaster films, but here this is a, supposed to be an intellectual pursuit of, of these questions i thought it was interesting when you said that um that you were happy for the space jockey to remain a mystery and i think that that's kind of the fact that that's where they the the point from the original film that they chose to build out from is really interesting because i always saw that as well as like a it's the barrier beyond which these people these tiny figures and they are literally tiny figures are confronted with the vast, terrifying nature of a universe that they literally cannot comprehend. Mm-hmm. It's like up until then they've been humans and we always see people and you know, they're relatable. And it's like they have now been cast into this this reality that there are things that are so far beyond their understanding and they are going to most likely be hostile. And everything from that point on is like that's the existential horror of like we're very small very vulnerable we don't understand anything and the universe is probably going to rip us apart and i thought it was an inversion of that when what you find out was this symbolic barrier between that has been kind of flipped back around and re-centers humanity into what was a terrifyingly vast unknowable universe it kind of weirdly makes everything feel less scary because now it becomes about us again it centers people and you know it's it's humans versus these humanoids who are just Mm. big versions of us and they also created us 
and so it becomes a human centric universe again yeah. and um uh, and i think and, and you know stuff like when you've got the orrery when you've got the glowing kind of orb of uh, you know it's the universe but it's like well now we've got access to the to the knowledge of just blow a little flute and you know yeah and and i yeah. thought that that was push some softballed eggs yeah not to say <laughs> i wrote uh... that patrick i wrote that down <laughs> So not to say there's anything wrong with that approach, because it, I think if you are going to get into these these questions, you need to have some understanding of what you're questioning. If you know, if it was just a mm. bunch of people throwing questions out into the void, it wouldn't have worked. So, but I, I do think that you're absolutely right in that. Um, if those are the questions you're going to pose, and in some cases that you're going to pose them in a quite an interesting way, if at the end of the day the big show Paul White is just going to throw you into a wall a few times. Like <laughs> that doesn't seem like a fair conclusion, but it's like, do you continue writing that script and trying to find those answers and, and see how far you can push or mm -hmm. do you do what they did, which is the, to potentially take some shortcuts in like, yeah, we've had enough, we've had enough questioning now. Like, how do you think you would have been able to, to, to address that? Would you? You're asking a screenwriter to answer the, the question that existentially every now and again, we might think, well, what, what does it all mean, Basil? Horror lies in that question, in, in, unanswered, in that unanswered question. That's where horror lies. You talked about the inversion. And the other, the other issue, I think, that Prometheus, right from the get-go, if this was going to be the direction is that the original is a B-movie idea that's elevated. And now we're starting, you know, the opening of this film is we're going to be elevated. And then by the end of it, we're going to dive into, and I, this is some of my favorite bits, but we're going to dive into kind of B-movie territory with monsters running around, killing people and smashing them in the face. It, you start at Tarkovsky, you end up at Corman. Yeah, it, and, and mm -hmm. there's, a, there's, something, there's something that means that that way around just doesn't quite work. And it's a third act problem. And I wrote it. I hear, Here's some of my examples to see if you agree with me. It reminded me a lot of Contact. I don't know if you remember Contact. Mm -hmm. The film sets up all these profound questions about reaching out and making contact with an alien being. But you've got to find a way of wrapping it up emotionally, but also kind of figuratively for that story. And it struggles. Um, I think as well, The Abyss is the same problem. I think even, you know, I disagree. I really like the third act of Sunshine, but Sunshine has a similar issue. I know it's not aliens, but it's the spiritual and space kind of fusing. And this film is trying to do that. I wonder if it's his Kubrickian aspirations that have got him in trouble here because 2001 has is another unanswered question, but it's a very beautiful visual film that's unresolved. And he thinks maybe I'll I'll play in that arena, do you think? I've heard it before that he's only as good as the script he's got. See, mm -hmm. Kingdom of Heaven. But what you, you know, he's very involved in the visuals and the design and the feel and, and the things he believes in, aka the, the, the jockey, the, the station. And in, in this, even watching those behind the scenes you mentioned before, is it, is a documentary called Fear of the Gods? The Furious Gods. Furious Gods. Thank you. Sorry. And even in that, there was times in that pre-production that you, it felt like there was too many voices looking at the story and the possibilities. And I, I, I kind of like the, the the beginning of the film. I really like the the 
the premise, the mystery, the what, who, who's this, what planet are they on? That there's the, what we call an engineer, this big Renaissance painting type person who drinks something weird and gooey that we'll see later and dissolves into the world. And we just assume the DNA spawned ourselves. And then the Isle of Sky stuff, I really like, I really like the discovery and it, it's unlike any other alien film we've seen. So like, oh, I get it. Like, great. We, we, Ridley's trying something. Here. This is fantastic. And we see something physical in a star map, but <laughs> oh, it, <laughs> I'm then immediately kind of confused with the, the ideology behind the film because that those images of the star maps are coupled with a huge person pointing to the star map. So are these guys, is it an invitation? Where did it come from? And if the, like Dev said, if he's just going to have this guy beating people up later on, there's no clear through line from their motive at all, ever. I don't think it marries perfectly, which is why I don't think it works. But I think metaphorically, that's what they're going for is engineers create us we create david and there's supposed to be a kind of mirroring or a parallel there the the fundamental flaw in that thinking is that we create david for a service but they never link that the engine so the engineers create us and then Mm -hmm. piss off that's not the same so would you like some mirroring like they created us for a purpose and that would create a, a kind of a yin and a yang to it Maybe that's why we crave an answer, because we don't get that, do we? It's not a problem to have some ambiguity and some mystery. We've, we've said it in Alien, that the, the ambiguity and mystery is, is wonderful and what kind of works really mm. great in it, that this disguised alien film over that is a horror. The horror is the, the, the point and, and human survival and, uh, and Ripley. Uh, but in here, if the, the problem is they are setting up a story and an exploration that offers answers. This possibly links into some other problems that come in with the writing in general, but that um, I agree that the, the opening three big sequences, I, I really loved. I found them super intriguing. The opening with the, uh, with the engineer melting is fucking brilliant. And I, on the rewatch, I was like, I remember why I was really hooked on this one. Shaw and, and uh, uh, Holloway's discovery and then David walking around the ship is also fantastic. The problem that we get with Shaw and Holloway is that once we've... I don't know what they do. I don't even know what their fucking job is. I think they're archaeologists. I think. But, like, they never elucidate what it is that they think they're going to find. They think it's an invitation. But there's nothing beyond that. Nor do they... If they are scientists, we should be hearing theories from them constantly they should be the smartest guys in the room and they should and you know it would also make sense that they would disagree maybe one of them has a hubristic view that they think they understand these engineers better but what that tent that actually gets kind of transferred to david towards the end that he gets the he believes that he understands what they want but because of that because we get so caught up in like gooey nonsense in the middle the the second act sort of becomes a bit more about like a survival horror but not really um which i love some of it it's some good stuff but that part of the film should have been the philosophical meat 
Andy and you start you start to feel like you're lost, don't you? Mm. And even when the characters themselves are a little bit lost and like Holloway, some of them aren't lost and they're they they're they're, they're going on their path. But I definitely felt in the audience myself, and I tried to dis- distance myself from my first impression in 2012. But this the frustrations came through. And the frustrations came through after those three opening scenes that you just spoke about Deb, which I'm like, I'm fully on board with. And then here's where I just start to like get confused and like, what's going on. We get a, a shitty looking Wayland projected through them and the crew wake up not knowing who each other are. I, I I'm like, why the fuck would you go on a two year cryosleep mission on the same ship, but you've not met each other, but you're sleeping in the same room. And I don't, how does that happen? Did they knock them out before they put them in the pods, right? Yeah. And and like, yeah, fine, like cinematic language and all of that and, and suspension of belief, but it's too jarring for me to ignore because I I do not buy that you go on this trillion dollar mission and and Vickers not know who anyone is. The people not know that they, this is a job. And the difference is between alien that they stumble across something. This is a mission. They should all be on a mission. And it, it, that's a really nice difference between this and, um, the first four alien films is that this is a, a, a purpose that drive. They've agreed to be there instead of being goal. forced yeah. by circumstance. They don't know who each other's are. It's, it's something really took me out of the film. I think there's a problem because there's a conflict in terms of Shaw. Because she wants, we always ask what a character wants, and uh, there's a strange sort of dichotomy because she's got the cross, and she's clearly a, a religious person, as is Ridley Scott. There's a quote from him about uh, God being the best designer; you can't do better than God. So every time he designs a creature, they go into uh, uh, underwater nature photography, and they actually look at where. Um, where, where these organic creatures on earth came from and they steal bits and pieces. So uh, he could have easily said, you can't do better than nature, but he, he specified you can't do better than God. And I think if she was passionate and devout when it came to the engineers and discovering where these, I know they are gods technically, but they're not the God from the Bible, you know, a guy in a loincloth and a, you know, and a metal grapefruit is not the same thing as uh you know, Jesus on a cross. So there should be, there's too many things happening there. Yeah. And, and it's, I, I, it's there, isn't it? It's right then, touching distance, that we're born of science and that faith of faith alone versus science, but the two are actually the same thing for her to get a clasp on. It's right there. The ideas are there and I really like the ideas and I, I, I do like the themes of the film. Um, I just feel that there's too many conflicting elements to the script that pull you apart. The issue is that it starts to compound, but there are lots and lots of questions. And I agree when you've got a mission, it feels, and I don't know what a trillion dollars is in 2093, but uh, mark for inflation, it still sounds like quite a lot of money. And everything on the ship is so state of the art that you have to believe that this is, you know, this is the last vestige of a very, very wealthy man. So you'd expect the best. You expect them to be fully trained and Devlin's totally right that there has to be an underpinning theory that is beyond, I believe, which feels a bit X-Files. And a lot of this, a lot of 
Prometheus felt very Star Trek to me, which I'm a big fan of. So I was like happy to deal mm. with these kind of questions about science versus religion, about meeting um, different races and what does that, you know, because in the end it's all about well, what, what does it mean for the human condition? Story. I think Lindelof described Shaw and Holloway as Mulder and Scully. Maybe it's just a shorthand conflict between the two of them. Um, one believes the other doesn't, and then they're bouncing off each other. We were right, Charlie. I have proof. Look. Their genetic material predates ours. We come from them. No. <laughs> okay. 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 Guess you can take your father's cross off now. Why would I want to do that? Because they made us. And who made them? <laughs> well, exactly. We'll never know. But here's what we do know. Is that there is nothing special about the creation of life. Right? Anybody can do it. I mean, all you need is a dash of DNA and half a brain, right? During the briefing, which felt a little bit AVP, I was like, wait a minute, am I watching Alien vs. Predator again? Did you expect Lance to come in with his Madonna microphone? Come in from the wrong side of the room to make everyone turn around and hurt their necks as well. What a dick. <laughs> there is a part of me that wonders, is, is, the, is the reason that Lance Harrington is not here is because Ridley's like, oh, I don't want it to be an echo of Alien vs. Predator, which it <laughs> is. It. And, and the other yeah. issue is that these characters feel, they feel like the, the, the surrounding characters, nobody goes beyond surface level. So we're almost in, and I hate to say this because it sounds like I'm really damning it, but it feels a bit Jason X. Like <laughs> they've all got one thing and that one thing is going <laughs> to define them, including our, our heroes. Like the, there should be a conflict between Shaw and Holloway. And and that should be science versus faith. Science versus faith would have taken them so far, especially with the fact that she can't have a baby, which they just throw into the script like a, a, an hour in. Like, yeah. Set that up. Their relationship should be, they can't build a family, but they've got a chance to discover where family came from. And uh, it it does feel a missed thing. And And this is where I'm like, should the script have Trojan horsed this idea of what does it all mean, Basil, into an actual <laughs> alien film, as opposed to the film is about what does it all mean, Basil? And by the way, by the end, it's an alien. Uh, and that's yeah. it, because that's what it is. To me, that's where I think fans were, I say purposely misled, but you just get all this excitement when you think, well, the person that created this world is going to is kind of go back to it. and. It reminded me a little bit, and it's a kind of a, a wider question. Has this ever worked? You know, when you get like the, the initial visionary uh, of a series um, or a franchise going back, you know, I'm not opening the doors up to, for some Star Wars fans to get a bit angry. But does no. it work when they come back, you know, even Spielberg with Indy? Martin Campbell, Casino Royale. Romero, Land of the Dead. But even Scott is going back to Gladiator. I would say Rocky Balboa. Because the Rocky series collapsed into entertaining coke-fueled self-parody and then imploded on a shitty Rocky V and then Rocky Balboa <laughs> made everyone fall in love with the character again. And yeah, but Avildsen did Rocky and Rocky V, which wasn't a good return. If, if you're talking from a design level for Scott and the alien world, he, he does put that through. There's similarities on the ship. The, the, um, 
the chamber. What do they call it? The the, the juggernaut. The the design of alien. The murals on the wall. The that's all there, and that's all through Scott. And Scott has mm. a good through line from alien to here. That there's an identity of okay. That this may not be the prequel. However. You fundamentally understand that it's in the same world, and and that design element is where he's focused because he does build better worlds, Ridley. That is one thing he does do. Mm. But I just wish he'd kind of applied that same logic and due diligence to his characters and mm. to the scripting because that's the stuff that really lets Prometheus down. Even like say the premise, I'm kind of like, yeah, this is this is very different to. Um, bunch of people doing something. Egg manages to find its way, and it's a haunted house or yeah. spam in a can, which has always been the the Alien series uh, one to four. So yeah. I'm happy that we've we've kind of created this scope for the series. Yeah, but it's just strange to me that within that scope, it's populated with the least mm. kind of human characters that you we've don't ever think had. That Chance and Revel um, were very well developed. No. <laughs> Oh, the self-sacrifice? I had a tear in both eyes, mate. It's incredible <laughs> that their whole arc in the film is a single bet. And they bet that they're on a, that they're on a terraforming <laughs> survey. And they make a quip about using the money, what was it, to, to see, see Vic, get a dance with Vickers. And that, and that, for, that's, you know, that's Benedict Wong, man. He's a terrific actor. Uh, look at, and, it's funny, you mentioned Sunshine earlier, Gally, and look at Wong in Sunshine and look at Wong in here, in Prometheus. And you, I feel you can tell Scott was interested in certain characters. I said it earlier, David is. He, he creates an antagonist out of David that kind of flies under the surface, he said in, in, in an interview, and, and you don't realise that poison is going through the shit. But it, it, look at the cast list. And even when, like, so that's Chance and Revel, but even with, um, Fifield and Milburn, who are given a lot more screen time, and there's some faux relationship between them. In... Are they intended to be the Parker and the Brett of, of Prometheus? Is that the comic relief deal? Yeah. I'm here for the money. <laughs> I love rocks. It's quite clear to me, you don't love rocks. It's embarrassing, isn't it? And, and the worst yeah. thing about the, that duo as well, is that they suffered one of the, the more horrific deaths and extended deaths. Mm. It's the first death, and John Hurt, it's not, you know. It's, it's slasher well, he, film it, fodder. It, uh, I wanted him to a, die. What they've seen in the, in the, the, the donut of the futuristic <laughs> light-based CCTV, which I also fucking thought was great. That's a really great way of, of expositing yeah. what's been happening to having them winston their way through the like the ghost train from ghostbusters 2. <laughs> um, so the two of them being stuck there having seen that and being the two that were the most scared of it would be fascinating if it were not for the fact that the next time we see them when they go back into the goop chamber mm. they seem so not asked so mm. yeah. like and uh, when they get back on the on the com to um, Yannick, uh, the captain, he also doesn't seem to give a shit. Everyone's just chuckling away about it. Like, no, I'll try not to bugger each other. Trapped... Yeah, two of your crew are trapped in like a horrendous storm in a weird mystery chamber. Prometheus, this is Milburn. Uh, 
We are at 7401477. Why? Just got a ping. About one click west of you. What are you going to ping? Well, whatever that probe is picking up, it's not dead. It's reading life form. Okay, what do you mean a life form? Is it, is it moving? No, I don't think so. Look, Captain, you're, uh, you're obviously not seeing uh, what we're seeing down here, but if you will, you won't be talking about a bloody ping, yeah? No, boys. The signal's been coming in sporadically since the storm hit. That's no good to us down here, Captain. Is it, is it moving? Are these things moving? No. No, it just disappeared, actually. Must be a glitch. What do you mean, a glitch? All right, boys. Sleep tight. Try not to bugger each other. Captain, what do you mean, a glitch? No, but what, what, what do you mean? Wait. He said... He said... One click west. Yeah. yeah. Well, we... We don't want to go check that out, do we? Huh? Shit, no. Where are we going to go? East. Yeah, East. Glitch, man. Pings, glitch, life form. What the fuck? Feels like all common sense is just swept aside in the writing of these characters. Uh, and everyone's a fucking idiot. And Milburn is the, the, the worst case for me. I like Rafe Spall a lot. But to make a biologist not interested in a... The, the whole point there is to go and find life. And they find life, even though it's a corpse. You'd be fascinated in it. You're like, whoa. But that scares him more than a fucking live snake-like alien, pure alien creature that's approaching him. And he sticks his hand out to it and calls it baby. There's, there's something so off there. Is that two, two writers conflicting? What, what is going on? Cause the, that, that feels like shit filmmaking. I don't know who Fifield is either. He's supposed to be a hard man and then he's a coward. And then he's, uh, it, it's all over the place. They're the worst example of it, but it runs through the entire script is that, um, again, in the original Alien, we are, we are dealing with characters that were out doing a specific mission, mining, uh, and so they will have a certain set of skills and then they're confronted. <laughs> and, indeed, indeed. And then they're confronted with something that they were not trained for and they're not prepared for. So when they make decisions like, you know, Brett lets the cat go and you go, you can't let him. And you go, well, yeah, that's a believable because he's not, um, he's not like military or, um, yeah, that's not the way not the he's programmed. And when he's trying to chase the cat, not the brightest. And, and when, you know, Sigourney says, well, we'll, we'll go ahead. They don't know what the size of the alien is. There's lots and lots of rationale and logic as an audience member. You can go, yeah, I can get on board with bad decisions. In this, we're dealing with, as you say, trillion dollar mission scientists. We've also got some form of military or security that they that they say don't come with us, but Vickers is in charge of it. So who's running yeah. this mission? It doesn't. It feels like everyone's freewheeling, and I actually suspect that they were freewheeling on set. And it might it might also speak to the time uh, that the actors and and the intimacy that the actors would have had in the original film when they were just working stuff out. You know, Veronica Cartwright, Yafit Koto, John Hurt. The Skerritt and Sigourney are all just sat around <laughs> and, and we saw it in the original making of of Alien that Ridley Scott said, Oh, just let the actors just, I've told them what the scene is, go work it out. You've got the script. 
if he's done the same thing here with these actors, they just don't feel like the characters themselves, that they've taken ownership of them, and it's very surface level. Mm-hmm. And the problem we have, as I say, is you keep button up with logic when you say, well, here's a character who's mapping, here's a character who's a biologist, but even the words that are coming out of their mouth, scientists don't speak that way. Patrick's right. Like The, the guy in charge of mapping gets lost, and uh, the scientist in charge of you know, being inquisitive is the one that tickles a space serpent. So it, it it's completely backwards, isn't it? <laughs> Gally, you said in your notes, do, do you think there should be more of a company big bad here? Do you think you can eliminate Charlie's and uh, and have just Wayland or or eliminate Wayland and, and have Wayland's daughter, whatever it would be? You have, you have Charlize, but you have her be a more integral character in the story. Like she, mm. she basically sits on the ship, does a, does a couple of lines, asks David, what did he say? And then all we know really about her is that she likes to mitigate risk. And obviously for her, dying young would be tragic and that people suspect she might be an android because she's so cold. That's mm. not really a character fit for an Oscar winner personally, I don't think. Yeah. She does, I think Theron does all right. She does fine, Patrick, but it's it's so superfluous to me. Well, it's you know she escapes death from the sacrificial ship with Idris. I need mm. to die thirty seconds later. Yeah, she she flamethrowers a guy, which uh, is fitting. To be fair, that's like, that's the only bit you see her kind of crack into some sort of yeah. human emotion, which I quite like. I like that bit. Her her and Idris, uh, uh, Yannick get, get presumably get together and are intimate at some point. Uh, after she flamethrowers Holloway, she's kind of distraught in her room. Apparently, that's how it looks. She's kind of got a shawl around her, and he comes to her room, and he's got some. Uh, it looks like coffee, but it's booze, and it's like, oh, hang on, here we go. And uh, he comes in, and it looks like he's gonna. He's comforting her about, and he tells a story about how uh, they nuked somewhere in the Middle East when he was a, a pilot or or whatever. And he's talking about the the act of killing. And it turns out that she's not bothered about that at all. She's bothered because she burnt her hand. She's the ice queen that, that Gally described in his, in his notes this week. It's like she's still not bothered that she's taken a man's life. She's a one-note character. There's enough in her performance to suggest that she's just saying that. And it's it's pretty good. That's interesting. Yeah, but it got taken out, didn't it? Some of her best stuff yeah. that added a bit more yeah. depth, potentially. You know, if you want to get laid... You really don't have to pretend to be interested in the pyramid scam. I mean, you could just say, hey, trying to get laid. <laughs> I could. I could say that, right? But then it wouldn't make sense why I would fly myself a half a billion miles from every man on Earth if I wanted to get laid. Would it? <laughs> hey, uh, Vickers. Hey, Vickers. I was wondering... Are you a robot? My room. Ten minutes. Well, if you can't be with the one you love, love the one you with, love the one you with. We haven't even talked about some of the old techniques that they're using to make so it's not all digital, and I love it, but it's all for naught if the characters and their interactions are just not believable. 
So can I ask then, on that galley then, the scene, because it's funny, we're coming back to the, the only character that's not actually human, but David and Holloway around the pool table. With, with that in mind, what, what do you make of that scene? I really enjoy that interaction. I just needed Holloway to have a... I needed a scene in order to, to believe that Holloway would be so despondent. And I don't think it's enough to say, oh, this is just another tomb. But if there's another yeah. tomb and you're that driven mm-hmm. and you've, got, you've come out all this way, then you'll be so driven to find them. You wouldn't mm-hmm. just go, oh, you, you might be a little bit deflated, but not to the point of I'm just going to get smashed and this has all mm-hmm. been for nothing. That's why and I think, was it Spate said the... You know, there's themes of the other alien film that we've discussed on here as well about motherhood and surrogacy and, and like rape and everything. I think Spate said he wanted this to be about sex and as a theme of the sex was particularly Holloway and Shaw. I mean, I, I, I don't think they did it properly, but anyway, I kind of see, I put it in story time that David essentially date raped, uh, Holloway there. You know, it's an experimentation oh, to the fact that he put something in the drink is, uh, mm-hmm. is as a visual. Yeah, clue. yeah, yeah, and it and it leads to sex. That's you know, um, if you're feeling ill, he was feeling ill. He shouldn't be having sex, and it leads to consequences, which is a date rape theme. And I think that's an interesting little subtext there. I'm very sorry that your engineers are all gone, Doctor Holloway. You think we wasted our time coming here, don't you? Your question depends on me understanding what you hope to achieve by coming here. What we hope to achieve was to meet our makers, to get answers. Why they... why they even made us in the first place. Why do you think your people made me? We made you because we could. Can you imagine how disappointing it would be for you to hear the same thing from your creator. <laughs> I guess it's a good thing you can't be disappointed, I think. Yes. It's wonderful, actually. May I ask you something? Please do. How far would you go to get what you came in all this way for? Your answers. What would you be willing to do? Anything and everything. Drinking too, I'd imagine. And I'll come, I might mention this a few more times, but those Whalen files, which I fucking love, there's one called The Prometheus Transmission. And you see a bit of it in the film, the girl playing the violin, the recurring theme, which is quite nice. But in there, Holloway says, um, I want to crush all man made religion and prove everyone wrong. And that's one line I could have done with in the film. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is exactly what we were saying, that they, they just didn't have. Like, Shaw and Holloway did not elucidate what they wanted to say to each other, kind of, ever. And they should have, it would have probably, I mean, you know, it would it possibly, if you don't handle it right, it's going to come across as bickering. They- Here's a twofold thought here. The script is almost like a tick list of things. Mm. Like, let's let's look at this. Let's look at, at day rape. Let's look at sex. Let's look at that. And it's just like bang, bang, bang. Let's look at the first death. It's just done. It's in an instant. Let's put someone on fire. Let's have Sean Harris get 
fucked up and run around and, and fuck shit up in an action sequence tickless. But I will say, like, they're, they're directed really well. I think Ridley Scott is directing scenes here really, really well. We, we touched upon the design and we should look through the look and the cinematography a bit more because the film looks fucking awesome for me. Um, and I, I do think that it, I think Ridley's doing good work. It's just kind of unconnected and incoherent too much. I think you're right, Patrick. The cesarean scene, for example, oh, is yeah. really strong. I think the um, the dust storm, I guess you could call it, is really good. And and they're well-directed action beats that, that are very necessary. Um, and, and I think it, it, you're right. In isolation, they, they work incredibly well. Mm, yeah, I, I'll second that, um, Matt. Although um, less so on the storm sequence, only because it felt like uh, we need an action sequence. Uh, and it also... Was slightly. Yeah, it doesn't mean it was directed badly. No, no, it, it, no. It doesn't. No, it doesn't mean it was directed badly. But it was another example of characters doing kind of like goofy things, like oh, I've dropped the head. Oh yeah, okay, I'll give you that. The one thing it does that's quite clever is uh, David becomes the alpha in a way because Holloway can't take care of her in that moment, and David is the one who actually rescues her. Yeah, and there's a nice moment between. Uh, Shaw and David, where you think there's an alliance being built, and and that's a night. Nice, their, their dynamic and their back and forth is good, including when he's becomes like a full blown uh, kind of thespian comedian. What he's saying, it's not a not a traditional theatre. Creepy Doctor David. I should mention the five field monster sequence as well, because I think that's a really good action yeah. scene. Yeah. And there was an interesting thing there where Weta Digital did an entirely uh, alternate scene with a, a an entirely digital five field mm-hmm. and uh you using the the mapping of uh i forget the actor's name uh, sean harris Patrick sean harris Hill. yeah sean harris um and they used his body to map it but they they ended up having these two alternate sort of takes of it and they ended up going with, completely with makeup and i guess there's some wire work when he's jumping off some of those trucks yeah. but the way he smashes in the helmet and it's quite a brutal quite scary scene along with the cesarean probably mm. the scariest stuff that we get well you it's, don't get uh, you don't get like a digital person jumping around that would be quite easy to animate like in mm. today's but they very nearly did so that's ridley scott again i think it's that's the, the stunt good, work good in this film is really really good the wire work is exceptional and all the location or backlot stuff, the stunts are heavy hitting. You feel the punches. You feel like uh, Dr. Ford, when she gets hit by the um, engineer at the end, and she gets slammed in the yeah, chest yeah. and she falls. There's, there's a lot of like real physicality that I like in these performances. But it's funny that we're saying these scenes are directed really well, and we're only really mentioning the uh, action sequences. Mm. The, the, I do like the mm. Holloway, David, around the pool table, quiet a moment. The cesarean is the knockout. I, I wrote in my notes, it could be its own short film. Like, you wouldn't need any context. Just mm. as a kind of a horror short film, it's amazing. And what I loved about it, especially, and it's helped by watching the making of, because it's so seamless. There's a risk that you could say, well, yeah, it's all digital. When you watch the making of and you see all the different kind of gags. That practical squid baby is fantastic, isn't it? The squid is covered in a condom and there's a little um, there's a little pin that they then um, 
They slice it with a little scalpel, yeah. That's old school. Yeah. The VFX and the SFX marrying up there. Part of it was uh, that they said that um, uh, uh, Numi Rapace was a trained belly dancer, so she was able to contort her stomach muscles. It's like, that's yeah. how you do it. That, that's that's one of the most effective every... shots yeah. with her yeah. bulging stomach and the in the close-up. Is it is incredible because when it gets to the end and the deacon, that's when you've got some problems. I think because the the, the, the rod work and the, it's stupid, isn't it? The, the the rod work on that that uh, the little xenomorph, the little guy, um, is excellent. Little shiny guy, mm. um, and it's great until they go the extra mile with the wetter stuff, and he, he grows another mouth, and it's got human teeth, and it's a it's too the CG embellishments ruin the practical. Right. Uh, work for me at, at the end there, but I think the cesarean works because it seems almost entirely practical. I don't, I can't remember any CG in there at all. It looked like an animatronic. Yeah, it looks good. Uh, Staples are obviously CG, but it's it's done really. They've well. gone in and enhanced, but it's 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 what we always ask for when people do effect-driven movies, which is like plan it, plan it, and put the work in before during and after they had to even when they knew that the big rolling squid thing was going to be cgi they still built a giant fucking scale model of the thing it's the cg tentacles at the end that, that get me a bit i don't like that oh i didn't think they looked that bad no. the, the, the tussle between the engineer and the tentacles in the doorway mm. feels like it has weight and mm. and struggle and the, the, the longer version of that scene was better patrick i thought because it it was almost a Michael Myers thing where she has like a bendy axe because all axes are bendy in the future. And he comes after mm-hmm. her after David says he's coming for you. And there's like a, a horror movie moment where it, it feels like a Halloween and she's hiding behind things. And uh, so that scene's kind of more extended. And then she hits the door and the tentacled creature sort of comes out. But um, in, in the, the final film, it's a bit more truncated and I don't think it works quite as well. My criticism mm-hmm. there, Matt, would be that he would definitely have killed her with a swipe of his arm, and it's just pulled her head off. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, well, and then I guess you also have the issue there of is it necessary, other than to have a third act stalk and chase? Is it necessary? It also yeah. means that we in can... an intellectual film. We liked it this. in Sunshine. It's a shame, and also it's the point at which we lose any opportunity to. Uh, canonically tie this back in as if it could be you know this is the 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 space jockey chest burst space jockey that we see from lv426 because the jockey is no longer in his chair which means that we now have to reconcile ourselves to the fact that two entirely separate space jockeys managed to get themselves into two extremely similar scenarios i think that's the bit where anyone who's paying attention as an alien fan that first watch that that's when the disappointment would really wash over is like, well, we've, we've been on this journey and we're expecting to connect certain dots. This is a separate adventure where similar things happen, where the donut will also land on a planet that's called LV something. And there was some alien creatures, but da, 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 da. it is not your xenomorph. It's not your xenomorph. It is a deacon. And, and obviously they don't call it a deacon, <laughs> although they should have had like a little deacon, like almost like a grease, you know, with the, Sort of greasy jacket or something. Should have written like, it on oh, his back. A, yeah, that's the deacon in, <laughs> in diamond, diamond encrusted because that's just kind of deacon vibes. Or maybe when his when his weird new mouth grows up, he's like, "Hey, nice to meet you, I'm the deacon." <laughs> hey, Kaliki. <laughs> oh, no. 
<laughs> we're going to go on some crazy adventures together. Come on in. We're going to do a whole trilogy. But but just to go back and wax Ridley's car a little bit more, Devlin, you're absolutely right. This is what we asked for. And and actually, even those minor criticisms that Matt's got, of you know, a, a couple of digital um, effects too many. God, I take that all day long versus some of the shite that I've watched in the last couple of years. On, For example, I watched um, last week, I watched the, the latest Jurassic World film. And it's appalling. It's the worst thing to happen to dinosaurs since the meteor. Yeah, indeed. Um, but but it's it, it, it's one of those things where I'm watching it. I'm going, we are we've literally jumped the shark as far as uh, believing anything that we're seeing on screen. There's a bit of a connection there. I thought we could have gone more with Giga's designs. There's so much left over from what Giga originally uh, offered to these films. Mm. Uh, so much that they have in their back pocket, and you find they find themselves designing a tentacled monster. It's like you have the greatest creature, arguably in 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 cinema. Really yeah. terrifying. It has its whole lifespan that you've fucked around with now and ruined. And uh, instead of digging into those old designs that are, some of them are terrifying, you see them on the making of uh, Giga visited and Scott's showing him around. But um, there's really no involvement at this time. He was an, uh, kind of an elderly guy. and uh, But that wouldn't have stopped them looking at some of those old pictures. No, I, I agree with that, Matt. And, and actually, this is not to, uh, a completely throwaway comment, but the, the squid thing, you know, when you see the, the belly of the beast, the mouth, um, it was a bit Jumanji for me. Do you remember Jumanji, the big plants that open mm. up and they've got little... I'm, 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 as I say, I'm, I'm not saying that to <laughs> it's be... It's got vulvas on yeah, it. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not saying that to be funny, but it's almost... Well, I am kind of, but it, it's over-designed. You need a mad European guy, don't you? Yeah. It's interesting to see when they're creating, like, the script, they seem to be doing alongside um, concept paintings and some really, be like, incredibly detailed concept painting work going on. And the, 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 the script was responding to the paintings. The paintings were responding to the script. So it was a really interesting development. Yeah. And like Matt said, that Ridley found the trilobite in looking at nature and God designs better than anything. And he just found something obscure. I just wondered, like, why it kind of fucked with the, the DNA of what it was incorporating and, and an evolutionary type thing that didn't seem to happen. Which is, which is what we've seen from the rest of the series, especially with three, you know, establishing that if, uh, if a Xeno is born from a four-legged creature, it tends to be a four-legged Xeno. And th there was something interesting about it taking on the, um, the characteristics of, of what it was born from and the fact that they didn't this time, I think speaks to a kind of an interesting kind of tension between this idea of Ridley Scott not being so precious about the thing that he'd created, which is brilliant. I think that he was willing to push out. Um, but that you've got this big team of designers and that's what they also had on the original film as well. Like it is a collaborative medium and you know, he was basically there as a, a filter, like a yes, no, this I'm okay with this, push this more in contributing ideas as well. But that, that kind of yes ending possibly in scripting and in design terms maybe resulted in that lack of cohesion in the story even though like we're saying the cohesion in individual scenes was fantastic and the film felt cohesive start to finish the look of it uh, uh felt right but yeah maybe when it came down to like not just designing the creatures but what were these creatures going to do what was their point like yeah, okay five field monster i i got and i thought it was 
fucking brilliant. Uh, the the first appearance of him all folded up mm-hmm. with his legs over his head. It's really bizarre. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's really weird because these things are supposed to be a weapon, aren't they? Yeah. So you're right. In in the the, the five field monster is kind of zombie esque. Mm. And, and then you have the tentacle yeah. squid. Yeah, yeah. And and the, the, there's a suggestion that the engineers are running away from an infection that they'd caused, like in their vestals that they created something like Ebola. Um, Scott described it as like an outbreak and they were running from that but that's all quite vague and subtext as well i didn't know why they were running well they found the engineers with holes in their chest yeah it's a line in the film isn't it and you kind of say to yourself okay is that the maggots um but if that's yeah what are we we're missing there's we don't want everything overly explained but to just have like ooh imagery i think it speaks to what you're saying gally about like episodic dropping in little like misdirections it's like i don't need misdirects in a film that should only be about two hours long i don't need to be led down the garden path in the wrong direction to then be subverted later because if you keep doing it over and over yeah. i don't even know what's being subverted anymore and this is me kind of almost walking into my summary a little bit um something's just off with these characters and i'm going to pinpoint the scottish lady which feels harsh to me but her performance in particular and i've seen her in uh filth forgive me team what's uh the actress's name katie she's dickie in... katie dickie yeah, yeah. red she's road really dickie, excuse me Kate. Yeah. red road's fucking brilliant yeah. she's amazing in that amazing in that mm-hmm. she's really good in game of thrones she's really good in filth she's she is a good actress something is going wrong on set because her line delivery i mean it is alien in a way it doesn't like it's just off, right? I'm not the only one that every time she says a line, it doesn't matter what it is. I feel like some they hung her out to dry. Yeah, I don't think she's getting directed. I, it, it's real. It feels like she's reading the lines without even performing. It feels like it's just like a read, a read through. Mm. There's nothing to it. I thought that map. Like just say your lines for the for the blocking. It just feels like that. Like she's uttering them for the first time without even bringing a performance to it yet. What is the atmosphere? Atmosphere, 71% nitrogen, 21% oxygen, traces of argon gas. Whoa, now that's weather. Just like home. Only if you're breathing through an exhaust pipe, CO2 is over 3%. Two minutes without a suit, you're dead. Peak, portside, whoa, 52,000. Makes Everest look like a baby brother. All right, take us round. We're going to use that as our point of entry. And I don't know if that's, uh, you know, nerves, but she's not the only one. I mean, even Son of Spall, Sean Harris is better in other things, but in this, yeah, he's, fucking, yeah. he's, dreadful, he's dreadful in this. Well, I mean, if, if he wanted yeah. to, I mean, I assume he was possibly cast on the strength of his performance as Ian Curtis in 24-Hour Party People, where he plays somebody who is extremely intense and kind of a bit and very fucked up. And that's kind of, that's what he's going for. <laughs> But I guess that's the difference between getting to play someone with a rich interior life versus getting to play somebody who loves rocks and money. <laughs> and but even even and it goes back to kind of the the leaping logic of just the conceit of the film. When it's like I'm not here to make friends, I'm here to make money. So this is the first time these people have ever met. And like all it needed was a line. If we're not going to show it because the film needs to be two hours long, it needs a line saying, "Oh." I saw you when we were in the training simulation back on Earth. I thought you you were cool. Something that would would give us the 
uh, idea that these people are not actually meeting for the first time. They're not mm. finding out why they are they are there for the first time. Is that not easier for a writer? If the characters have met before, is that not an easier film to write? Do they call it like in media res, right? That you should always try and get in on the action at the latest possible moment that you can while still understanding what's happening. Yeah. There's Which they kind of do, but they've forgotten to do the bit that's like, ah, but we're not going to do the mission briefing and mm. we're there. We we got there today. What? <laughs> what? Mm, yeah. what? That feels off. That feels so off. You could, I mean, yeah, you could, you could hand wave it by saying that the mission that you were being briefed for back in Wayland HQ was a smokescreen and it's actually this. And we couldn't tell you on earth because it's the biggest secret ever because we might have found God. Maybe this is like some extra Ridley Scott car wax uh, and it's continuing on from the character stuff, but I've got a new addition. Uh, It could be like a new segment if you want to do it. It's called Meet Me Halfway. It's all about what the characters are doing when we first meet them because usually we find that revealing in some way. Um, So... Uh, Charlie Holloway uh, was uh, puzzled, clueless in a daft hat with his arms outstretched, holding some kind of tin plate for camping. So I felt like that was that that could have been better. Um, Charlie Theron uh, is doing press ups, sweating, demanding a robe. Uh, That was originally going to be a nude scene. Yeah, uh, and Ridley Scott vetoed the nude scene. Lindelof wrote it as she was going to be nude. Uh, Lindelof uh, actually said, <laughs> like, just an excuse to get Charlie's thrown naked on oh, screen, which I thought so... he really he, he didn't. Did. Yeah. It's on the mm. documentary. It's like, you fucking dickhead. <laughs> yeah. Uh, David is playing basketball, riding a bike, watching movies, trying to emulate uh, human behavior, which is very good. Uh, Son of Spall is moronically (laughs) perusing a menu (laughs) with a daft expression on his face, which I liked. Uh, And Idris Elba is smoking a cigar and decorating a Christmas tree. The Ridley Catholicism stuff, uh, Matt, obviously we are meeting our makers and we've got faith and it's Christmas and yeah, Jesus. Oh, hello. It's all all there. Uh, As Patrick said, though, just make him Cockney. Yeah. Yeah. Why is he doing the accent? Just let let Idris be. Mm. It's better than uh, Son of Spall, but it's it's still a bit shaky. <laughs> Son in, of in Spall. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, just a little um, note here. As a friend of the show, Sarah Selway worked on this, okay. um, and I've worked with the AD team quite a few times. Max Keem's the first. I, I thought we touched upon it earlier, but I thought Max did a really good thing of. He scheduled their first scene, which was the outcry sleep breakfast scene. And I, I, I just on a production point of view, I think that's a very clever scene to schedule first. It's relatively simple. There's no VFX or low VFX on the screens and stuff, but get all the actors together in a scene that suits them coming together in a film mm-hmm. on a sound stage. I think that's a clever thing. You, you'll see Max, um, he gets interviewed a lot in the, um, Behind the scenes footage is one of the best firsts I've ever worked with. And Sarah was the third AD on this and she had a very good relationship with Charlize Theron. I think she gave her a clapperboard that she signed that Sarah's got in Luke's house as well. Um, Luke was our university friend. I met Sarah through it and she gave me many jobs thereafter, which I'm forever thankful for. 
And Sarah would, um, she told me of a few things, like especially in Iceland, where she'd oversee the prosthetic calls for the engineers uh, that would be hours. Essentially, she'd sign them in, set them up, go mm. to sleep and say, wake me if there's a problem. And if she was waking, it's like, oh, fuck it up, because I've got to get it prepped for the start of the shoot day um, for all that ice and stuff at, uh, at the waterfall and, and, and other bits and bobs. Mm. Yeah, no, I totally agree, Patrick. And, and actually, you've, you've kind of uh, walked me into what I think will be our kind of final talking point on Prometheus. And it's interesting actually, because we've, we've tried, I think this has almost been like a, a kind of cathartic, uh, <laughs> almost like a, uh, yeah, like a session on the couch where we've tried to like par, like, what does it mean? What are we doing? Um, <laughs> and I have titled this last one as the, the trick with the important. It's not minding that it hurts. And that's, it's interesting. We haven't really even talked about Fassbender. And I think that's because it's universally recognized. He's the best thing. He's the best thing in it. It's the best character. <laughs> it's the most yeah. interesting character as well, because there's genuine nuance. Ha- Ham Neil? thing is, he's, he's not, he's not hamming. No, he's I just, don't think he, so. He's, uh, he's Thespin. He's holding it in. He's holding it all together. It's probably slightly rotted flesh, but it's probably yeah. Guy, Guy Pierce who's giving you the bit of the ham. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He is. Yeah. yeah he, he's ham. Ford, uh, I mean, like, Hol- um, um, son of Paul and Harris mm. are a bit ham. The thing is, though, Ham Neil is supposed to elevate and he, he doesn't. He, he drags yeah. this one down into the pits, unfortunately. Yeah. But no, what I wanted to discuss, really, and, and as I say, it's not to discount Fastbender. Wilson, we'll talk about him again in future films, I'm sure. Um, he's excellent in this. And if you go into the making of, I found it interesting that universally actors and crew were like, yeah, this guy. And I think Charlie Saron literally says something along the lines of he he can get to places which most actors might take weeks months to get to he can just do it instantly physically he's amazing yeah. as well i mean the shape of him anyway but i i love what they do with his hair and that he mm. again i'm going back to these wayland files but what, the, the video happy birthday david it is fucking awesome and it's all about fastbender and he he looks at the camera and those very last line is emotional and it, it gives you such an interesting arc to him. I love that mm. Vickers is blonde as well as him, which gives the kind of, that they are essentially siblings because Wayne says the son I never had. And Vickers yeah. is the, the daughter of, and that's very clever. But Fassbender, it, all on his face, the delivery, how do you stay neutral in a way? You know, like Ian Home was giving a lot more leeway because he was pretending to be human. We weren't supposed to know mm. he, he was synthetic and he was an advanced um, uh, synthetic at the time in the, we're looking at a timeline. But again, from Ridley Scott's direction, you know, all that stuff with David at the beginning that we've discussed before is wonderful and really interesting. And just him eating and learning language or him watching Lawrence Arabia and quoting it. He is fascinating when he's opening the vestral and and experimenting and looking and and at the end uh whalen says to him there's nothing he goes i know have a safe journey mr whalen it's wonderful yeah. his interactions with numi she is better when she's acting against him yeah um, well same same goes mm-hmm. for logan uh, logan marshall green as well we said that the, the the best uh moment that he has is interacting with michael fassbender at the pool table it's the first time that everyone yeah. calms down and raises see... his game a bit yeah and gally you like the scene when he's taking her to the medi lab um uh... no i just i just love the there's like a malevolence 
Und mm. undercurrent, you know, he's saying yeah. lines that are darkly funny considering the situation, which again points to, you know, how sentient is he? You know, the, the whole mm -hmm. question is, mm -hmm. does he have a soul? He can't want or need things. It feels like he resents humanity as well. He's a yeah. scary character. I understand how inappropriate this is, given the circumstances. But as you ordered quarantine fail-safes, it's my responsibility to ask, have you and Dr. Holloway had any intimate contact recently? Since you and he were so close, I just want to be as thorough as possible. My mind. You're pregnant. From the look of it, three months, sir. No, that's impossible. I can't be pregnant. Did you have intercourse with Dr. Holloway? Yes, but ten hours ago. There's no bloody way. I'm, I'm three months pregnant. Well, Doctor, it's not exactly a traditional fetus. Don't think that's a good idea. They're the kind of questions that I think you can leave dangling, and Fassbender does a good job. Totally, yeah, yeah. But but from a premise perspective, as I say, the reason I think Prometheus uh, causes this, and the reason why I titled it "The Trick of William Potter is not mine and it hurts," is strangely not seen this film in over a decade. Yet once I watched it, visceral, my reaction was was strong. <laughs> like it wasn't a kind of I hate or I want to throw my shoe at the TV. Really big shoe. Um, but I had a reaction, which was <laughs> yeah. strong. And, and there's something in that, because I think this is a film that if you mention, people forget, like, I don't think anyone is, like, clamoring for discourse over Prometheus. But the moment they... So people are quick to forget. But once you remind them, it's visceral. They get, they get straight. And Devlin, you got an example, right, this week. I, I saw it. Um, I, I saw it at work. I was watching the making of video on a little pop out window on, on YouTube on my second screen at work while I was doing some very boring Excel related stuff. And um, you were skiving at work. Absolutely. Uh, I'm on strike. <laughs> <laughs> so I was uh, I was watching the thing. I've been watching it in kind of, you know, fits and starts, 15, 20 minutes here and there when I had time. And I paused it, put my headphones off because I needed to look at something else. And I noticed that the three lads or the three people behind me at work um we're all talking about prometheus and like intensely getting into like why didn't charlie's theron run left or right when the thing was rolling at her and what was going on with this and it was all the questions that people would have had in 2012 and these three people were like just one after another it was like a machine gun and it went on for i heard it for 20 minutes before uh i had to go and do something else it's like that's insane that one of them must have glanced, mm. seen a little pop-out video of a making-of documentary <laughs> of a, uh, an 11-year-old sci-fi movie, and they were straight in. And it was just, mm. I thought it was, that's class. That's, uh, there's got to be, there has to be something. People don't do this for films that are crap. People don't go see something that was like a total washout and then want to talk about it. You know, it's... Mm -hmm. And I think that that probably gets to the heart of like how confusing this film is. It's, just, it's, it's got, 
it's got its detractors it's got its defenders uh i guess we'll we'll possibly visit lv c c roger ebert we'll, we'll go craig's corner <laughs> in a bit and find out what the what the curricle consensus was because it was uh you know yeah you're right like the the discourse died down as it always would there's just too much stuff to continue being angry all the time about prometheus like i think i was this person back then and that was a mistake really that i wanted an alien film and expected it and then expecting something like that is just stupid of me i don't think it's just as simple as that patrick because if it was just a case of you wanted an alien film then that would have been your point you would have left it as no that wasn't the film that i wanted and i'm done it isn't that though, is it? It's it's this, it's that, it's that, and so it ends up. You end up kind of getting wrapped in the story that they proposed to tell, and into the minutia. And, and it's not. That's why we try to keep it at kind of like a macro level. But you can go into like, why doesn't Charlie Saron run left or right? Why didn't they just do something like they did in Twister when Bill Paxton and Helen Hunt are stuck on a on a track? But you can see that. They cannot get out of a ditch, which is why they can't go left or right. They don't do that in this. And then, but Numi Rapace does roll left, I think, no, right, and survives. So you're right, that, that's a minor, minor criticism or a minor nitpick. But the film is fucking loaded with them, um, which is why I think people mm. get so exercised because they think, no, Ridley Scott, Alien, this should be it should be better or there will be a reason why these things are there. And we've tried to do it for our chat now. And I still haven't got any of the answers, but I tell you what, who might Matt, I saw a, a, a scribbling on my toilet door. It had a big person pointing to some uh, broadsheets. And I, <laughs> I took it as an invitation. Uh, so, yeah, I don't know if you want to be following any invitations you see on toilet doors, but yeah. the, uh, it's got it's got a little bit dove and dover, hasn't it? Uh, it's <laughs> Matt, can you tell us what the uh, critical consensus was uh, eleven years ago? Because I gone forgot. Well, our very own Siskel and Ebert, in the shape of Patrick and Biggins at Real Whispers. Uh-oh. Uh oh. I'll start with uh, Patrick. Patrick's already told us a little bit about it at the beginning, so. Um, I agree with the young lady of that era whose name escapes me. He's a very handsome young young man. Looks a lot like Matt Followill from uh, <laughs> Kings of Leon. Uh, so I, I think it was about 11 years ago, opening night in an alleyway. Um, Patrick talks about the stunning virals, the TED Talk, the David promo. Uh, an expansive, ambitious plot, but the script was lacking. Overuse of the word baby. <laughs> Guilty. Odd language. Uh, characters didn't feel human. They felt designed and there was too many people in the crew. It was too bright photographically. He was upset to say that he was disappointed. Uh, Fassbender was stunning, chilling, superb, but Patrick was unconvinced by a lot of it and ended with what a shame. I wanted so much more. Mm. Mm. Uh, continuing on with friend of the show, Biggins. I'm not sure who's Siskel and who's Ebert at this point. You can be the judge. Uh, <laughs> He delivers his review with the confidence of a young Marco Pierre White, who was uh, <laughs> scarier than the film at times, I thought. Uh, he highlighted the misuse or underuse of Charlie's Theron, described Prometheus as a mixed bag with an ambiguous meaning. He found Numi Rapace boring. He disliked the fake makeup. Um, 
we we can only assume it's uh, Guy Pierce as uh, Wayland Fly at this point. <laughs> um, he thought it was irritating and was disappointed. Um, there was one scene that had him clenching his guts, and I think we can also assume that's the Caesarean. Uh, he summed this one up with, uh, if you want a popcorn film, then you might like this, but Jesus Christ, I was expecting more. And if you want to see the two lads, they're in the playlist this week, so you can uh, have a look on rewindmoviecast.com. Uh, into the basement, very quickly, we go for Matthew Buchanan's three-and-a-half-star review, which quotes Wilson Minor and says, the trick, William Potter, is not minding that it sucks. <laughs> nice. Uh, Siskel was pushing up daisies by this point, but Roger's hanging in there with a maximum perfect score of four stars. Wait, uh, he really? would die the same year uh, that this was uh, released in uh, 2013. 2013? Sorry, the year after, 2013. Yeah. You paid him off. Well, I, I got the sense that a man at the end of his existence still with a lot of unanswered questions about where we came from, how we came to be, why we're here. This perhaps factored into to Ebert's glowing review of the film. He said, where did they come from? The, the puzzle is embedded in an adventure film that has staggering visuals, expert horror, mind-challenging ideas, and enough unanswered questions to prime the inevitable sequel. His favorite stuff was them exploring the caverns and the passageways of the pyramid. Uh, he loved the, uh, the, the drone globe trackers. Uh, which I love too, especially in the cinema. Ebert called it magnificent, a seamless blend of story effects and pitch perfect casting. Uh, it does raise unanswerable questions, but he called the 3D sane and effective. He did note that familiar franchise elements like parasitic aliens that enter our bodies, unwanted pregnancy and feminine strength are all present. Uh, yeah. So that, that's Critics Corner. God bless Roger. I mean, to be fair, it makes sense because I believe he gave four for white chicks in 2004 as well. So I think at this point, he was just trying to throw fours <laughs> out really? right and center. Is that, is that an accurate? Is that an accurate? He reason? said Cruz stole it on the dance floor. Um, in the film, so there we go. Are you making this up? Yes, I am. Yes. I forgot. <laughs> yeah, I'd be there. Uh, line and sink but the fact that we can't tell says that speaks volumes about Ebert. Yeah. Yeah. Can I uh, agree with him on the 3D? From what I remember, that it was uh, one of very few 3D films that I saw in that era that was uh, unobtrusive. It felt like it'd been it, thought it just through. felt like it felt like being in in the yeah. room as opposed to having things shoved it was in depth you. rather than things popping it's, out at yeah, you like exactly, jaws 3 yeah. particularly effective with the map scene with david yeah. it was yeah. more like looking beyond the proscenium arch into a diorama oh, as opposed to it oh, all coming at oh, you oh hitchcock oh yeah. someone, someone oh, bits of film yeah. school have they <laughs> someone, got, someone got a degree very good no, I, I will retract my um my, my sentiment matt about it being too bright i think this film looks pretty good Ah, well, one of the comments on your video, Patrick, says that it's because of the 3D. That's that's why it was so bright. Something to do with the lumens and to make it brighter for the 3D to be accessible. I also thought, Patrick, and I didn't mention it, that I, I thought that was a good a good sub subversion from what we would expect from an alien film was the fact mm. that we were going to, you know, we've we've complimented it in, the, in mm -hmm. the past with Jaws when 
we're in a horror film, but it's daylight most of the time. Mm. Um, it's a trick to make something mm. horrific in daylight. Again, that's The Shining's Kubrick. In Pop quiz, hot shot. All right, quiz time. <laughs> it, it's funny, I think all of these have been answered through our, our, um, our review today, so I think this is going to be quite quick. But let's get ready. Reminder of the scores that Matt's on a mighty seven, Dublin on six, Galley on three, Aiden and M, uh, our visitors were on, our visitors, our guests were on one. What's your buzzer, please, Matt? Vases! <laughs> <laughs> Just make him cockney. Um, what's your buzzer, please, Dev? I like rocks. I love rocks. <laughs> Uh, Gully, don't let me down. What's your buzzer? Take you back to Cryodeck. Go to baby buys. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. I was hoping someone would go with the baby from Son of Spore, but never mind. That would have been my buzzer. Right. <laughs> Question one. Question one. What film is David watching? Take you back to Cryodeck. Go to baby buys. Gally, who I heard first there. Is watching Lawrence of Arabia. Lawrence of Arabia is correct. Right, so there. Gally gets a rare point. Oh, I thought I muted myself. Um, question two. <laughs> question two. What is Holloway's first name? I like rocks. I love rocks. This <laughs> is Charlie. Charlie is correct. I thought Matt was going to get that because you said Charlie yeah. Holloway earlier on. Yeah. Um, wow. Okay. Gally one. Dev one. Third and final question for someone to win or to Matt to tie it up. Here we go. What year does the expedition take place? Take you back to Cryodeck. Go to Baby Bay. Gally straight in there. 2093. Oh, 2093 is correct. Gally is victorious. And I'm well rolling, done. rolling on a river. <laughs> <laughs> a river of goo inside yeah. the juggernaut. Did they call it? Did, does anyone want a how many killings bonus question? Oh, I'm terrible at this. I, I always go too low, so I'm going to go seven. Eleven? Ele- seven and eleven is incorrect. I'm going to go with twenty. Twenty-one. That's incorrect as well. Now, this is an interesting one. I thought there were 19... It's a 19 crew. 17 crew. So I thought that would have been the basis. But I only counted 16 deaths. And I think that's because some of them are completely off screen. Uh, some crew that are just on the ship somewhere that must must die in the sacrifice. Oh, there's a crew member that looks like the missing Neville brother. He's dressed all in black and he's behind... You know when Charlie's goes to see... No, no, when Shaw goes to see Waylon fly, he's in, he's all dressed in black in the background. And he looks just like... He's half Gary Neville, half Phil Neville. <laughs> well, I, I only counted 16, but I, I, I found it quite amusing trying to find the deaths, imagining that when Captain Yannick goes on the suicide mission imagine there's some crew at the back like just doing a wheel or something like what the fuck's going on (laughs) (laughs) thanks for playing well done galley up to four nice no worries team well guys our final thoughts and recommendations so i'll start with you matt um prometheus what do you think uh there's a quick checklist of stuff that i liked here because this final thoughts summary is a bit of a shit sandwich uh janty yates I believe she's called, did the costumes, and I thought they were amazing. And if I was ever lucky enough to direct anything and had a crew like this, 
I'd be over the moon. So there's some, there's a lot of car wax to go around. Um, the music is instantly recognizable. I don't think we've spoken about the score at all, but it's quite whistleable. Um, uh, there are technical caveats though, too. Uh, I don't think the CG is perfect. I don't like the tentacled squid. I don't like the weird slow-mo at the end. And I do feel like the CG embellishments have got in the way of some otherwise knockout practical work, digital rod removal, wire removal. Um, I don't like the Deacon. don't like that part at all. Uh, there are even some clunky jump cuts, even the bit in the cave when Shaw calls Poundland Tom Hardy <laughs> over to look at the, <laughs> at the cave paintings. And there's a jump cut there and it just shows that it, you can pre-vis all you want and uh, you can storyboard or Ridley Graham, as he calls them, all you want. But um, you've really got to get the execution a bit a bit better, I think. You wouldn't catch Kubrick jump cutting like that, I don't think. Um, I, th I think this is probably along the lines of what happened. I don't know for sure, but I think Ridley Scott wanted to do something new. And he, he was obsessed with this idea of not returning to sci-fi until he felt he could do something original. And I do think Prometheus has originality, but I don't think he could get any old 130 mil sci-fi greenlit. So he had to go in uh, as an alien prequel, even though a lot of his interest wasn't there. And his interests and the fans' interests, I don't think they aligned properly. Um, so he ended up with an alien adjacent film, and that was disappointing. Um I think uh, dark science fiction taken seriously is is our cup of tea. Usually I'll speak for myself only and say that I really like it. Um, Effects-wise, the edginess of the look, the money behind it, there's some grisly little ideas. Dev was talking about the, um, the costumes. I thought the vehicles were excellent as well. Maybe the best they've ever looked in a sci-fi film. I'm not sure it's been bettered. Blade Runner 2049 springs to mind, but different kind of film uh no one creates worlds quite like ridley scott um it's just very beautifully intricately and cinematically whatever that means to you uh designed films i've ever seen uh it asks a lot of probing questions that it doesn't answer galley eloquently said of jaws uh, i don't think there's a better version of this film than the one that we got uh on our jaws podcast and that's something i think about and apply to everything we watch now is this the best film version of this particular story and i don't believe prometheus is um but strangely i'm gonna recommend it because i've revisited it so many times that there's technical prowess there the world buildings the the minutiae technical aspects the sheer number of people on the credits was staggering. I think it's crafted by experts. And even if it is just technical in, 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 in a visual sense and uh, uh, in the sense of just the audio, it's, it's a wondrous thing to look at and listen to. And if you're lucky enough to see it at the cinema, that's probably the best you ever would have hoped to see it. But there's a, there's a great, uh, great Blu-ray out there um, that might, help you recreate that i'm still puzzled by a lot of it i wished i could have had a, a a more direct connection to alien 
Having yeah, having said all that, it's it's a recommend. Otherwise, I'd be a hypocrite because I've seen it five or six times since it came out. Maybe even more. I'm going to pass it to the left hand side. Gally, how about you? Oh, you see, this is going to sound like I'm damning with faint praise, but I think Prometheus feels like the cinematic equivalent of a fur coat with no knickers. Um, it it looks <laughs> incredible. <laughs> Belts and braces. And I think, unfortunately, where the film lets itself down is in probably the cheapest part of any kind of production, which is just the pen and the paper. Um, I'm just not sure that they quite nailed the script and the characters that are going to populate this incredibly ambitious film. Um, you know, to pull a quote from Aliens, like, did IQs just drop sharply? whilst we were away from the Alien series. You know, we've got characters here. I mean, Milburn, he can only be described as so dense that light bends around him. You know, <laughs> he's fucking so... just It's infuriating. There's just those fundamental flaws, and everything else is compounded. So those kind of YouTube angry critics that, that kind of use Prometheus that can maybe birth that, that type of review, it's ripe for picking um, because there are so many problems with... Leaps in logic, leaps in the uh, execution of the premise. You know, why do these people not know each other? Why aren't they fully trained? Why are these scientists? You know, what is it that they said to Wayland that convinced him? We have a line from Wayland that says, you convinced me. They needed to convince us as an audience member of what this theory was. That wasn't just pictures, pointing, invitation. Um, that's where I think the, the film uh, falls down. However, I'm with you, Matt. Um, the fact that this film kind of gets me juiced up, uh, it's not just because I'm an Alien fan, because I don't really feel this way about Alien Resurrection. I very much know how I feel about that film, and I don't, don't really ever need to see it again. I will, because I'm, I'm a huge fan of the series, but, but I'll not get exercised by it. It is what it is. Whereas this film, I'm always searching, and maybe that's kind of the point. Mild recommendation, but it kind of has to be seen, I think. Uh, uh, what about you, Devlin? I think fundamentally echoing where, where both of you come from on this, although for the first time possibly ever, I actually wrote a conclusion because I thought about this film way too much. So I thought I'm going to put it down. It's, I'm, I'm going to try and get through it as quickly as I can. Um, I think in the end, the frustration with this film comes from the knowledge that talented people headed up by an inconsistent but extremely gifted top-tier director went into this project with good intentions and were granted financial and infrastructural support, the likes of which we may be unlikely to ever see again. That the film reaches for something profound is a positive, and that Ridley Scott was not so precious about his original film that he was willing to push in different directions is laudable. The opening sequences are absolutely breathtaking, but in the end... It just doesn't quite soar. The intrusion of synthetic, shallow dialogue and lurches and tone undercut the awe that such an undertaking should inspire. There's an almost cacophonous clash of intentions and some inexplicably weak performances from some usually reliable pros of this muddled script. The mysteries the viewer is left with are not of the fundamental or intergalactically epistemological. Rather, we're left to interrogate logic gaps and inexplicable character motivations. The film's attempts at slyness end in nothing more profound than a rowdy body-slamming smackdown and a go-nowhere stinger of the birth of a new type of alien creature before a sudden cut to black. It's a disappointingly prosaic conclusion to a story that started out so boldly 
and uniquely. But having said all that, it's also an incredibly intricate and genuinely impressive looking film with ideas and executions of individual moments that really do, especially in retrospect, make it a film worth revisiting. As mad as it sounds, I felt genuinely nostalgic for a time when major tentpole movies were this well executed, at least in technical terms. The editing is fluid, the cinematography is clean, cohesive, innovative, and integrates terrifically well with VFX work that is not just competent, but in places truly impressive. Uh, the opening sequence is so wonderful and the establishing scenes up to the team briefing and intriguing and had so much promise. The Fifield monster scene, the med pod, the futuristic light-based CCTV, these are wonderful visceral sequences that are still super enjoyable. I think in some ways time has been kind to this one, at least for me. Divorced from the lofty expectations and with a decade of films under my belt that in a lot of cases seem to aim for little more than episodic disposability, they really, really tried for something here and sporadically created something so close to wonderful that it just couldn't gel, couldn't get over some fundamental problems that are baked into the core of the film. These are what stuck with me after I watched it for the first and only time at the cinema. But as a more sanguine, perhaps more jaded or maybe just more tired film viewer, I actually had a far better time in this film than I thought I might. I would recommend revisiting. I think there's some real magic in there. My God, why did we talk for two hours? Devlin, very well said. You know what? You've, convin you've convinced me I should write summaries instead of just making it off the hoof and talking about furs, fur coats and knickers. <laughs> very good. Patrick, how do you, how'd you follow that up? Devlin, I can't believe you stole my written summary. So, um, um, I agree with everything you three have said. <clears throat> I do like the sentiment about the trick Mr. William Potter is not minding that it hurts and not minding that it kind of did hurt when I first watched it um, all those years ago. And now realizing that I was expecting something that I had no right to expect, really. And I do really admire that Rudy Scott and I'll say the writers as well tried something else big, vast questions and exploration and life and evolution and to question everything. And, you know, it, it wrapped up into a summer blockbuster, um, big hitting film. And it, this, I quite enjoyed it. I, I was never bored. Um, it's thoroughly well made. It's well acted on the most part for the more important roles. I, I didn't... I thought Rapace was actually okay. Um, I think Theron's good. Fassbender is undoubtedly the MVP. But the David stuff always hooked me originally. The Whalen files, um, you can get on the Blu-ray or DVD extras always really hooked me. And that, that, that intrigue was enough to keep me coming back. That's why I bought the Blu-ray. The Fassbender stuff fascinated me. That's why I was really quite looking forward to Covenant when it came out as well in the end, because Fassbender and that Scott is interested in artificial intelligence and, and that creation and that question, um, that, um, myriad kind of metaphor for, for life and humans creating when they shouldn't and becoming gods themselves. There's enough in there that, that uh, on the subtext and intrigue for the film, but the script is, inconsistent and I described it as a tick list and I do think it's a tick a box ticking exercise at some parts like let's do this scene and let's do that and let's have the cesarean section scene that just 
happens to be the best scene in the film and the box well ticked because I was craving that horror. And when that horror came in a really unique and amazing scene, oh, wow, yeah, it's really, it's Wrigley. So Wrigley, you know, he knows his shit and can make something look fucking awesome. And the film does look great, shot well. I like the score as well, Matt. Um, I like the adventure of it all. Very different to the Alien film. He has removed himself far enough that I think um, is admirable. I just did want more, but I do recommend it. Um, I'd be interested to hear how we compare Covenant to this when, when we get to that film. Mm, yeah, no, agreed, agreed. And I'd be interested to hear what viewers think, one of this review, and if they do revisit it, whether or not, if they were uh, strongly against it or strongly disappointed in 2012, whether or not they've softened, as I say, it could be that we are just a bit jaded. But I do think it is a reflection of some of the films uh, that I've seen over the past few years that have really, like Prometheus is far, far and away better. As a film, not as a script maybe, but as a Did film. Did you see Life? Yeah, and that is that is such a throwaway, superfluous kind of ripoff. Um, th- this is far better than Life. And that's the thing, isn't it? As a As an alien fan, disappointed but don't we want our filmmakers to go into different directions this is where we're into the sense of like what do you really want from a sequel because the studio execs are saying you just want something that's the same but different um and and how how many times can you turn that wheel you know once james cameron's turned it into a war film once david finch has turned it into a a, a spiritual existential uh, depressed fest <laughs> and once uh once the the frenchman have, have picked it up and made it a farce where else can the you frenchman. go yeah <laughs> i didn't mean that Genet. i didn't mean that he deserves more <laughs> but but really what what do you want do you want another uh spam in a can or another crew that mm. are just trying to we'll we'll get to it when we get to covenant maybe Mm, we'll see um thank you very much uh guys devlin would you like to tell our listeners about some of our high quality sustainable (laughs) merchandise that you can pick up uh via our site uh i can uh we've already had a uh a solid plug for rewindmoviecast.com which is a website that we own and operate um and if you hit the hit the tab that says shop uh that'll take you to uh links for our t-mill store devlin does drawing dot dot com there are t-shirts there and also bags and posters and some stickers uh some merch for the podcast most of it is just stuff from films that we like there's nothing alien related up there just yet maybe i'll do something about that i doubt it but um you know keep an eye on that one because we do post new new designs every now and then when i get time Excellent. Excellent. And listeners, if you like what we do, then please like, share, subscribe, spread the gospel team. That's what we ask. Um, it brings more people to the party. So we really appreciate it. And, and hopefully you're really enjoying this LVRMP series, especially on the alien. I mean, we're always going to say the alien's probably a bit better than Predator, but you know, we don't want to get into that fight just yet. We haven't covered <laughs> them all yet. Um, no, but we really do appreciate it. Uh, and, and team up next in this series is, I think it's Covenant then the Predator. Am I right? I'm... Yes. Covenant 2017, the Predator 2018, I believe. There we go. So the homework has been set, listeners. So please go forth 
and uh, do your multiply. research and come back. Yeah, multiply all the black goo or whatever. <laughs> well, we shall say our goodbyes then, shall we, team? It's been a it's been a pleasure. Get to get to get back on the back in 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 space where no one can hear you piss and moan about things <laughs> about plot inconsistencies. Indeed. And speaking of pissing and moaning, uh, this one goes out to all those people that are still raging about uh, Prometheus. It must feel like your god abandoned you. It's Gally <laughs> in Glasgow signing out. There's only death here now. It's Devlin in London. <laughs> it's so cheery, isn't it? Mmm, gazpacho. Patrick in London. May I rest in peace. It's Matt in South Korea. Oh, thanks for listening, everyone. And we'll catch you next time on the Rewind Movie Podcast. Oh, what is God?